0: Some of us have been reciting them long before we knew you personally. Some of us know them, but if we're honest before you, we don't really know you. Lord, we ask, uh, please open our eyes this morning. Help us to uh, see you, know you and therefore to be able to pray more as Jesus has taught us. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Is my lapel mic working so that I can get rid of that? It is. Or is it? You can tell me in a minute. What a man is on his knees before God... That he is, and nothing more. That quote is often attributed to uh, Robert Murray McShane, the great 19th century Scottish preacher. But But those who've um, uh, researched it think um, probably he never did say that, but he should have. Perhaps for 21st century clarity, he should have said, what a man or woman or boy or girl is on their knees before God, that they are and nothing more. But the sentiment is absolutely central to the Bible's teaching about who we are. And particularly to where prayer fits into that. Perhaps... That sentiment is why prayer is so popular today in this country. Because popular it is. Um, My generation, the oldies, we are actually the staunch anti-prayers as a whole. Um, Only 24% of Britons over 55 ever pray. But amongst 18 to 34-year-olds, a survey has revealed this week, 51%, 51%, more than twice as many, over half the population, pray. Perhaps partly that is because, as the, 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 um, the star of the new atheists, a group of men of my age, who are increasingly looking like grumpy old men as their star has waned and people have been less persuaded about the sort of radical atheism that they talk about. But possibly our hunger for prayer and the growing hunger amongst young people for prayer is because actually, in every other situation, we live in a world where we have to put up a facade, where we have to present in a certain way. We have to put on a mask. We, we have to massage our, uh, our, our social media identity. And we long, actually, to be alone with someone who knows us fully And loves us. And so instinctively more and more people are turning to prayer. I don't know whether that's true. But that statistic stands. You see Jesus is saying something very, very attractive. When he said, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. Go into your room. Close the door. And pray to your father. Who sees what a person is on their knees that I, uh, before God. That is who or he or she is. And we long for that. We long to find a place where totally unguarded, totally open, totally seen... We are loved, accepted, and listened to. So we pray. What Jesus has been doing in this passage is he has been teaching us how to pray. He has been trying to shape our prayers. He assumes that we pray, did you notice at the beginning, when you pray. Pray. It seems to be a sort of cultural, historical blip. This uh, um, my generation that hardly prays. No, throughout cultures and throughout history, people pray. People sense that there is a, a a a spiritual life realm beyond the visible. That there is a someone or something out there, and they turn in prayer. And Jesus is saying. When you pray, pray like this. Don't, first of all, he said, make it all a matter of show, of being the actor, of hypocrisy. He says, no, true prayer is a child coming into the presence of their heavenly father. Alone, private, totally known. But then, uh, last week, we were seeing true prayer, more controversially, I think, for the, for the human spirit. True prayer is accepting that we are not the center of the universe and rejoicing in that. Hallowed be your name, says Jesus. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. As James said last week, intimacy, reverence, participation, surrender— to the god who is the center of the universe true prayer decenters me and puts god at the center doesn't immediately strike us as very attractive that the 51% of us who uh, do pray I suspect don't begin their prayers, uh, hallowed be your name. But that is because they have not learned profoundly to understand what Jesus is teaching us when he says, pray our Father in heaven. Father who knows you more comprehensively even than you know yourself. A father who loves you more deeply than any other human being. A father who is committed to your good more wisely, more profoundly than any human being ever could. And he's saying, go to that father who is the center of the universe And give yourself to Him. Open yourself up to Him. Find the intimacy and uh, reverence and surrender of knowing Him as your Father. I find my deepest fulfillment when instead of seeking my kingdom, building my own little world, I say, your kingdom come. I find my deepest uh, contentment when I say instead of making myself great and putting myself at the center of the universe and desperately trying to keep myself there, I say, you're the sun, I'm the planet. I just want to enjoy your warmth. You're the architect, I'm the builder, I just want to build according to your plans you're the you're the gardener uh, you're, you're 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 the creator of life i'm just the gardener just let me nurture and you give life you're the father i'm the child hallowed be your name so that's uh, uh, that's what jesus has taught us to so far then but then these last three stanzas, uh, stanzas develop uh, that a little bit further. There in verses 11, 12, and 13 of Matthew 6, he's saying, pray for what you need. And that is both less and more than you imagine right now. Pray, he says, first of all, for your basic physical needs. Give us today our daily bread, he says in verse 11. Our bodily needs, immediately Jesus is alerting us to, are important. Some, some theologians down through history have looked at this, give us today our daily bread, and they've thought, well, it can't mean that it must be some sort of spiritual bread that he gives us maybe it comes to us in communion or, or whatever they've wrestled with it and it was the reformers in the uh, in the 17th century who said no it it means what it says jesus cares that we have bread on the table every day jesus cares that we are well nourished our heavenly father cares about those things and he invites us To pray about them. Martin Luther. The reformer. uh, Extended it. I think. uh, Perfectly. Reasonably. To suggest. That this just. Stands. As the. The epitome. Of a much. Wider sense. Of just. Bringing. Our physical. Needs. To him. He said. Everything. In this. In this little phrase. Is encapsulated. Everything. Necessary. For the preservation. Of this life. Like food. Food. A healthy body, good weather, house, home, wife, children, good government, peace. In other words, everything about our physical existence, bring it to God. Because He cares about those things. He cares about those things, we know, because He created them. Everything in this world was created. His greatest... His greatest delight was to create a physical world and physical beings. We know more securely that he cares about this, our bodily existence, because he sent his son, Jesus, who became flesh, who took on flesh. And suddenly God's engagement with this world was not just spiritual and distant. It was earthy and physical and bodily because God cares, and we saw it finally confirmed to the fullest when Jesus rose physically, bodily from the dead to reignited uh, uh, human life, eating breakfast, barbecuing human life, and promised us that that is our that resurrection life is our future you could have no more set of solid assurances that God cares for your physical life. So pray about it, he says. Notice it is basic needs. He doesn't invite us to pray for cake. You know, God gives people, great. some people, great wealth and that is part of his calling on their life and it brings with it joy and responsibility and there will always be wealthy amongst you says jesus but that is not our fundamental need that is not the fundamental thing that we pray for if we pray primarily for wealth We have misunderstood the good life, the best way to live as human beings. The uh, writer, the wise man of Proverbs, uh, wrote this to um, encapsulate, I think, the Bible's thinking. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread, he said. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. And say, who is the Lord? Or may I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Yes, it is not an unvarnished blessing even to be wealthy and rich. The blessing that God wants us to enjoy centrally is that he provides enough. He provides enough to sustain you he provides enough that you do not fear need to fear he provides enough for you to fulfill his purposes on this earth and jesus says pray for enough and pray for just enough for the day did you notice that daily bread in other words he 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 is saying you can't plan the future. You, you can't, you, it, it's not appropriate and it's not wise and it, and, and it will not do you any good to think I have enough for the whole of the rest of my life. No, we were made to be those who have to entrust our future welfare daily to God. And let him just give us enough for today. Jesus was quite uh, clear uh, uh, in Luke chapter 12. What God thinks of the person who, when he's become wealthy, tears down barns to build bigger ones to store up wealth for himself. God's verdict on him is you fool fools. Give us daily, today, our daily bread. And you see, Jesus is promising that God will answer those prayers. God will provide those needs, day by day by day, enough. How different would your life be if you really believed that? How different would your life be if you, rather than thinking oh well I I must make myself a bit more secure. I must take that better paid job so that I just have a little bit more money in, in the bank. I must Uh, Make sure that I've bought a house. Or in my case, um, frankly, um, for reasons that I don't know, my pensions advisor has decided to now write to me every six months telling me the, um, the state of my personal pension plan. So every six months I find myself thinking, have I got enough? And it saps our spiritual vitality. The real question for each of us is, will I trust Jesus today for all my bodily needs and let him worry about tomorrow? Will I get up in the morning and say, give me today enough, my daily bread, and then live for him, whatever the cost, knowing that then I'm going to do it tomorrow and the next day and the day after and in 20 years time and on every day until I die. How would your life be different if you lived like that? And of course, it's not just bread. It might be a life partner. As Martin Luther pointed out. It might be security of some other kind. Will I mortgage everything to find that security? Or will I entrust it to the Lord? Knowing that his bank is infinite, and he can give me anything he wants to give me and serve him. This is how to pray. Give us today our daily bread. And then the second thing that we need that Jesus points out is simple and yet profound Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That word "debts" can have a broad range of meaning. It can mean financial debts, uh, and and so on. But since verse fourteen is talking about forgiving sins against us, it's almost certainly it that's its primary meaning. As the old King James version said, "Forgive us our trespasses." Um, that's the the primary sense that I think. Jesus has in his mind here because you see alongside daily provision we need forgiveness and we need it daily I've said before but let me say it it again that A world without forgiveness just generates dysfunction. It generates in us, on the the one hand, so often hypocrisy and self-righteousness and desperately, desperately trying to persuade ourselves and the world that we are good, that we do not need forgiveness, that it's everyone else who's wrong. And, of course, we build ourselves at that, that, that up to such a high tower that when we fall off it, we fall into despair. Forgiveness is a fundamental human need. It is what enables us to live as ordinary, fallible, broken, fallen human beings with joy and peace and contentment and openness. Ian McEwan uh, wrote a book a number of years ago which became a a film, Atonement. It's a very interesting story. It features um, a young girl, Bryony Tallis. She's played by Sorcha Ronan in the film. And uh, this young girl commits a terrible sin with deep consequences. I'm going to try and avoid too many plot spoilers. She is dogged by the guilt of that terrible act. But as the story unfolds, Ian McEwan's message becomes clearer and clearer and clearer although with a surprise twist at the end, if you know. The twist though only reinforces what Ian McEwan is saying. Atonement is impossible. There are consequences of our actions, he's saying. There are things that play themselves out in the real world. And little priony talis has to live with the weight of that for the rest of her life you see one of the fundamental reasons why the word gospel is used so much in churches It means good news. And it means that Ian McEwan is wrong. It is the great conundrum of human existence. There is... Uh, justice built into the universe we see it we see action and reaction whether we are buddhists and describe it as karma or whether we are are atheists and we 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 describe it in newtonian cause and effect sense there there is this inevitable consequences of our failures that are built into the world and the big question is how can i be free how can i live free in that. If you are um, a Buddhist, you will just label it all as meaningless uh, and, uh, and, and seek total detachment from the sort of co- action and reaction of this world. If you are a Muslim, you will simply surrender it to the mysterious will of God, hunchala. If you are an atheist, you'll perhaps try and take control of it and do something about it with technology and medicine and all of those, those things. But none of them really sets us free. And what the Bible says is that we have a heavenly Father who is willing to forgive us. We have a heavenly Father who who sent His one and only Son to deal with that inevitable consequence of our failings, but to absorb it in Himself, God the Father and God the Son, and therefore to offer to us What Ian McEwan says is an illusion, atonement, forgiveness, full and free forgiveness. Yes, there are consequences and there is pain that will not cease until God creates his whole creation afresh. But at the root of creation, at the root of our being, at the very root of our relationships, is a relationship with a God who says to us, I forgive you. There is nothing more to pay. There is no more There is no broken relationship with me. There is only my love. Only my acceptance. Only my forgiveness. Only my warm welcome to you now and for all eternity. I forgive you. Some people worry that there might be there, sh- there should be such a sort of offer of complete forgiveness to human beings. Wouldn't we just um, 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 run off and do worse and worse and worse things? Well, let me paint you a picture to try and show you why that is not so. Imagine a 16-year-old just got to the age where they can be left uh, alone and their parents uh, go away and, um, for uh, a couple of nights away and the 16 year old decides this is my opportunity i'm gonna have a party throws a party for, for for their friends and everything goes horribly wrong someone brings a whole lot of alcohol in and uh, various members get drunk there's some gate crashers who come in and start a fight the whole place is completely trashed someone ends up in in a hospital it's a complete mess the 16-year-old is sitting on the floor in the middle of this, this carnage and this mess When mum and dad walk in and, and he can see the shock on their face, the horror as they survey the scene. And he's terrified. And they say to him, what a mess. Let's clear it up. What does he do? Does he think, wow, great, I can have another party next weekend? No, there is love that flows in that moment in both directions. And he starts to clear it up with his parents with a tear in his eye. And he's never going to do that again. And those who truly know the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father find that kind of inner transformation. Indeed, says uh, Jesus, one of the fundamental ways in which a person who really knows the forgiveness of God is that they find themselves now beginning to be able to forgive others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. In other words, says Jesus, there is a transformation in the human heart that goes hand in hand with this forgiveness from God. It could be read, particularly in verses 14, as if there was some kind of of transaction. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So I sort of uh, build up some obligation on God's part to forgive me um, if I go around forgiving other people. It could be read like that, but it would not fit with the rest of what Jesus is saying. Now, taking into account what Jesus says more widely, it must mean that this is an infallible mark of those who truly found forgiveness from God that they will always be those who've learned to forgive other people. And indeed, if God sees unforgiveness in our hearts, then at the very least, it casts, casts a doubt over whether we have truly found forgiveness ourselves. Now, that is not the, the, uh, the only word that could be said on that. Sometimes there are are sins, situations of sin that need to be confronted and worked out. But the fundamental truth still stands. Those who come to God their Father are offered the deepest thing that we need. forgiveness. So, how would your life change if you believe that? If you truly believe that, and let me assure you, if you have really absorbed that, you will not be like that teenage boy um, planning. His next party. You will be someone who has learned to truly love your Heavenly Father. You will not live cautiously either. Meticulously, like the Pharisees trying to put together a, a, a sort of CV that involves no sin of any kind and uh, uh, never going. Um, uh, within a thousand miles of it in your own mind, but actually building up a deeply pathological set set of self-righteousnesses. You'll live free. Free of the deepest thing that we fear. Being unforgiven. Bring your needs to God, says Jesus. Your bodily needs. Bring your need of forgiveness to God, says Jesus. Bring your need need for his guidance and protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There are some questions that surround this this verse that we need to think about for a minute. One is, um, are we talking about temptation, as uh, the NIV says, or as I think the footnote says, testing? Um, The truth is that, again, it's a word that has a broad sense uh, about it And probably in this case, it does mean the broadest sense of testing, whether that being simple temptation or some wider trial. That immediately raises the question, surely God doesn't tempt us, does he? James 1 verse 13 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God says, uh, James is saying, is not responsible for our tendency to sin. And we should not blame him for that. But God does allow trials to come into our lives at times. Earlier in James, for instance, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials. Temptations, the same word, um, of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, what this verse seems to be saying is, uh, Lord, lead us. Please let it not be into trials. Though I think there is no doubt that there has to be a bracket in that, nevertheless, not my will that yours be, yours be done. I know sometimes, as Jesus knew it as he faced the cross, that trials are necessary. Deliver us from the evil one. almost certainly it is the evil one, not just evil as the old Lord's prayer had it from Satan. Lord, please, we're saying. Please be gentle with me. Please lead me by straight paths. Please um, take me along a road that does not plunge into the ravine Or cause me to wade through the marshes. And in particular. Deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from Satan. And he will do that. He will not make every circumstance of your life easy. But he will not gratuitously take you into trials. Perhaps you have some trial that you are enduring at the moment. Some deep difficulty. There is always temptation that goes to that, goes with that. And there is always Satan harrying at our heels in those situations. you have a promise from God he will not take you through those difficulties unnecessarily and he will protect you in those difficulties from ultimate disaster from Satan himself How would your life look different if you believe that? I think people are longing for that kind of reassurance in life. I think people feel that it's a dog-eat-dog, vicious, dangerous world out there. And they're longing for guidance and protection. I don't know whether you noticed, but... Um, The Chelsea Flower Show that has has just happened. The the, the centerpiece was um, a Psalm 23 garden. An oasis of peace. Because Psalm 23 speaks so deeply to modern people. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside... quiet waters he refreshes my soul he guides me along the right path for his name's sake even though I do walk through the darkest valley I fear no evil for you're with me your rod and your staff that they, they comfort me how would your life be different if you believed that The safest place in the world is to be led by God. The place where you will find nourishment is where God leads you. The place where you will find rest is where God leads you. The only person you need with you as you walk through the darkest valley is God your shepherd like that shepherd, he's got a rod and he's got a staff and nothing's going to get you. Lead us not to the time of trial. Deliver us from evil. How would your life be different if you believed he answered those prayers? Now, these words of Jesus, you see, over time, they can profoundly shape you. When you pray, make it a prayer alone to your heavenly father as his child. When you pray, Make it a prayer that is surrendering to him as the center of the universe. When you pray, he says, give him your fundamental needs for bodily sustenance, for forgiveness, for guidance and protection. that prayer will shape your whole life. Let's come before him now. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. Let's see